It was the spring of 2005 when I received a call from my friend and colleague, uh, Robert Coleman. Robert, his friends call him Clem, uh, taught evangelism for many years here at Asbury and for many years uh, taught other places. Now, actually back here, retired, teaching once again here. But in 2000, 2005, we were colleagues together at another institution, uh, Gordon-Conwell. I was professor of world missions and Indian studies, and he was the distinguished professor of evangelism there. He's perhaps best known to many of you for his uh, best-selling book, Master Plan of Evangelism, which has sold millions of copies in many different languages. This is what he said on the phone that day. He said, Tim, I don't know what your plans are for Easter Sunday, but I thought there'd be no better way to spend it than preaching the gospel at Harvard Square. Now, I've been preaching the gospel uh, here and abroad all of my life, but I must admit I never in my life preached the gospel in the streets. I never, like, you know, put a box out and stood on it and just preached the gospel on the street. I felt scared. I felt apprehensive. I felt even maybe a little foolish about the whole idea. But I thought to myself, if I cannot preach the gospel in the open air, then the gospel has become domesticated in me. So I must say yes. So I said, Clem, uh, I've never done this before. I need a little coaching, but uh, let's do it. So on Easter Sunday, 2005, by the way, this is, would be March 27th, still quite cold in Boston, we made our way down to Harvard Square to preach the gospel. Now, specifically, we're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the heart of Boston. Cambridge is the little strip of, of land in Boston that really brings together MIT and Harvard. So there we are in the shadow of Harvard University. Right over there is MIT. And right in the middle of this little kind of concrete place in the middle of all of that, Harvard Square, is where the uh, Cambridge stop of the Massachusetts Transit Authority has their stop, their subway stop. And every 10 minutes, hundreds of people will emerge from the ground like a volcano, you know, <laughs> belching forth lava. And there we were waiting for them. And we had, uh, uh, Clem had gotten a, a Salvation Army band, praise God for the Salvation Army, good old salvos. And they, uh, they, were the, they would play, you know, for a few minutes, gather a crowd, we'd preach for like five minutes. And we did this uh, for, for hours and hours. Great experience. I won't go into all the details, but I really felt like with that day I got in touch with, in some ways, the gospel, but also our Wesleyan heritage in a fresh way. For few things mark the distinctiveness of the 18th century Wesleyan revivals than this strange practice of open-air preaching. Now, at the center of our campus here in Wilmore is a statue of John Wesley. I have actually a small version of it. to remind you of this iconic statue on our campus. Probably the most, you know, if you go to, if you go to Google, like Google Images, and you type in Asbury Seminary, John Wesley statue, you get a jillion hits. The only problem is he's dressed with various other things. <laughs> but there he is, preaching the gospel, his hands in the air, Bible in his left hand, his hat at his feet. 
This is not, by the way, a, just a modern depiction of Wesley that we you know, commissioned somewhere and someone came up with. This is actually a representation of an 18th century lithography of Wesley preaching the streets in the open air from Market Cross in Epworth. Now, depicting an open air preacher at the center of an academic institution like Asbury is a very important lesson for us. You recall that Methodism was not born in the fields or in the open air or with uneducated lay people. Methodism was born in the holy clubs of the rarefied inner workings of Oxford University. That's their version of Harvard and MIT. And that's how it was born. And this movement of John Wesley from a charter house trained, Oxford University trained, ordained minister in the Church of England to a Methodist movement fueled by street preaching, field preaching, lay and non-formally trained ministers is one of the great chapters in our heritage. There are so many lithographies of Wesley preaching on the open air. In fact, when this message is posted, I will put a link to that. You can see some amazing pictures of that. Him on top of his father's grave uh, in the open market as depicted here on our statue or in brickyards or coal mines. You see, Wesley was realizing that he was at the heart of a spiritual awakening. And he had to think differently about preaching the gospel in a context which was what we call extra moros ecclesiae, outside the walls of the church. And arguably, that's where we are today, where the vast numbers of people today that you need to represent the gospel to are outside the walls of the church. Our statue here on this campus has its origins in February of 1739 when George Whitfield began preaching outdoors to coal miners in Kingswood near Bristol. By springtime, George Whitfield was preaching to thousands of large crowds of mostly miners and brickmakers in the open fields. Now, Whitfield preached in the open for two reasons. One, the uh, Anglican Church wouldn't permit him to preach from the pulpits because it was a parish system and he had no assigned parish given to him. But two, quite practically, there was simply no physical space which could contain the crowds that were coming to hear the message of the gospel preached. One of the most dramatic scenes that's recorded in several journals were the faces of, of miners with blackened faces from coal soot with what they called white gutters coming down their faces from this tears streaming down their faces, cutting through this coal and soot on their faces. Can you imagine it? God was moving in a mighty way. But Whitfield had many other preaching engagements. He had uh, opportunity to be over in Wales. He longed to come back here to America, to the New World, to continue his work here and his orphanage work. And so he finally decided to call upon a 36-year-old evangelist to kind of come down and take it all over. Anybody here happen to be 36 years old? Surely we have a 36-year-old here somewhere. Praise the Lord. There she is. (laughs) Think about it. 36 years old. A young man named John Wesley called to come down and take on this movement. 
And so Wesley was invited to come down to Bristol, England and do something he had never done before in his life, kind of like me in 2005, open-air preaching. Now, Bristol was one of the largest cities in 18th century uh, England. They made bricks there, obviously. They made, made mine for brass and zinc. And Wesley felt about open-air preaching kind of like this is really not a very good idea. In fact, he even said that he thought it was just like, like just not right to preach in any place other than a church building. So he brought it before the Fetters Lane Society, which, which he belonged, and they did what people did in that day. They cast lots, and the lots fell to yes. And so he agreed to go down and preach the gospel out in the open. And he wrote this in his journal. I'm quoting from his journal. Wesley writes, I could scarce reconcile myself at first to the strange way of preaching in the fields. Having been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. It'll bring you to tears, won't it? <clears throat> Later, when he preached to thousands in the open air, he preached from the Sermon on the Mount, wonderful series, remarking that the Sermon on the Mount of our Lord was probably a pretty remarkable precedent for field preaching. And so off he went. Over the next few days, he preached around Bristol and Baptist Mills and Hainham Mount and Kingswood and Rose Green, Bath and Pinsford. These were not planned events like, you know, Billy Graham kind of machinery orchestrated kinds of events. These were events that happened. Travel, go to a town, preach, but they all drew between one and 7,000 people. His favorite venues were graveyards and marketplaces. Graveyards were chosen because a tomb could be used as a pedestal to preach from, and the church building, how about that, preaching on someone's tomb, and the backdrop of a church building made for a great sound backdrop, which helped the, uh, the amplification of voice in days when there were no speakers. Markets were often used because there was a cross in the marketplace. In 18th century England, in fact, all over Scotland too, the whole now UK, they would use crosses in the marketplaces because it was a reminder for people who did their buying and selling to trade and buy and sell honestly. So you could actually preach in the open air in the marketplace underneath a cross. In fact, that's actually the, the, the background of this particular version that we have on our campus under a market cross. Now, local, local clergy opposed them at every turn. They called them unwarranted. They called them an even illegal intrusion to their parish. People threw mud on them. People threw stones at them regularly. People jeered at them. Some of you unleashed herds of pigs into the crowds to break up these crowds. But they kept preaching the gospel. They knew that all that mattered was the final vindication of it all before the Lord of glory. I hope all of you remember that that's what matters in the end. You will be opposed. You'll be jeered at. They may not release a herd of pigs in your congregation, but maybe. Um, You've got to keep on preaching the Gospels. Wesley's famous line, all the world is my parish, is rooted in those realities. Closed pulpits to him, every pulpit in England close to him, and also the fact that he had embraced a rather bold new ecclesiology preaching in the open fields. But a movement was born. 
And this movement slowly became known as the Methodist movement. But they had major challenges. They were people coming in masses. They were mostly the uneducated poor. And Wesley, like Asbury on this side of the Atlantic, was realizing they were witnessing the emergence of a whole new church planting movement. This was not like sheep stealing, sheep swapping. This was a newly emerging church planting movement. At this point, Wesley knew they had to think differently, organize, turn this into something powerful. As he said it, said it organize to beat the devil. That's what Wesley had to do. The genius is found not in the fact that they became field preachers per se, but actually in their joining that with discipleship bands and class meetings and the truly remarkable preaching they engaged in what I want to call, what is called homiletical theology. That is, the content of Christian theology, Christian teaching, conveyed not through textbooks, but through public preaching of the gospel, indeed through every public expression of their ministries. I want to focus this, my eighth convocation address, on homiletical theology. It was homiletical theology or catechetical preaching which turned a popular spiritual uprising into a major church planting movement which transformed the world. An excellent book on this topic comes from the pen of one of our professors, Dr. Kenneth Collins, his book, A Faithful Witness, John Wesley's Homiletical Theology. When you begin to examine John Wesley's sermons and what he preached and during his whole period, you'll discover that John Wesley's preaching bears almost no resemblance to preaching in the Wesleyan tradition today. There is a huge gap. We must take note and re-examine what we have lost. For those students who are not preparing to be preachers, this applies to you as well. Because it invaded all of their ministries, whether it be counseling, whether it be in church planting, youth ministry, formal teaching ministries, all your future vocations should be expressions of thoughtful reflection, which is theologically rich and biblically faithful. Now let me just remind you all why we are here and what makes the Wesleyan tradition so rich. Among many things is the capacity to bring together into a holy synthesis that which is often thought to be in conflict. And you know many of these, the head and the heart. I noticed that uh, Dr. Levin Legron mentioned already in her opening prayer. Law and grace, divine sovereignty, human free will, depravity and divine human synergy, evangelism, social action, and on and on it goes. The deep capacity of our tradition to hold these rich biblical truths together is one of the reasons I believe that our tradition is so compelling, so powerful. It is known as the Wesleyan synthesis, which keeps biblical paradoxes paired and powerful, not parted and prioritized. In most traditions, they're kept separate, and then you have to prioritize them, and one inevitably trumps out the other. In the Western tradition, they're held together. They're paired together. And several of these themes, like divine sovereignty and human free will, or head and heart, are widely discussed and appreciated. But I'd like to focus on this theme today, the synthesizing relationship of theology and preaching in Wesley. 
because this is actually really one of the crowning jewels of the Wesleyan synthesis. We should include this in our, in our talking about this. John Wesley was fundamentally a preacher of the gospel, but he was also a thoughtful, insightful theologian. And it's interesting to note that when you read John Wesley's sermons, they're as rich a source of theology in his reflection than you find in his formal theological writings. Wesley, you might say, is a giant of homiletical theology. For Wesley, theology was not primarily intended to resolve various philosophical problems. That's the difference. That's the driver of most standard works of theology, even to this day. Rather, theology was designed in Wesley to serve the church. Randy Maddox from Duke points out that we should not think that because Wesley did not produce a systematic theology like, for example, John Calvin's Institutes, God bless him for that, he was therefore disinterested in theology. We must delete that file. Randy Maddox says, rightly, Wesley understood that his preaching, what Maddox calls, I love his phrase, catechetical homilies, actually served to restore theology to its proper place, not merely resolving conceptual biblical structures or theological systems that are outside of Scripture, but as a handmaiden to the church for the purpose of the salvation of the world. We have the gift of soteriologically driven theology. That is something we should revel in. It's not philosophically driven, but, the, but soteriologically driven. That means that, that preaching can be linked to theology, not just esoteric thinking. Now, to understand Wesley's approach to preaching and empowering the early Methodist movement, we must go back to the 16th century. When Henry VIII died in 1547, his only son, Edward VI, became king. Now, he has the distinction of being the first king raised as a Protestant. Now, Edward VI is the one that really opened the door to the Reformation in a full and open way. Most of you are familiar with the most uh, famous publication under his short reign, The Book of Common Prayer, published in 1549. The 39 articles derived from this work, which was finally published, uh, finalized in 1563. You must understand that pastors in the 16th century, if you go back in time, they had no precedent for preaching on Sunday morning. The thing that so much defines how we frame and shape Christian services was simply not done. They had, uh, you know, short homilies, sometimes during Lent, but the idea of robust weekly preaching was not known. And so Edward VI, who authorized the preparation of a set of sermons that were given out to help the church and help pastors teach the faith to their congregation. Listen to this. The recovery of preaching, preaching as public catechesis, the exposition of Scripture for the laity was at the heart of the Reformation recovery of biblically formed faith. So Thomas Cranmer, who you may remember for 22 years served as the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he produced 12 sermons which became the 12 standard sermons to be used in the church. These became known as the Edwardian homilies after the king. It laid out all the key doctrines of the Reformation. They had homilies on the authority of Scripture, the authority, uh, homilies on justification by faith, uh, homilies on uh, 
you know, perseverance, on sanctification, on many, many amazing doctrines. In 1547, which was the first year of his reign, Edward VI issued a royal injunction that every church in England must have three things. They must have an English Bible. Remember, Tyndale's New Testament published in his own life in 1526, had been smuggled into the country. Here we are just a few decades later, and that now an English Bible is being required to be held by every church. Two, they were required to have Erasmus's paraphrases on the books of the New Testament, which had been put out between 1517 and 1524, and Cranmer's 12 homilies. Okay? Now, there was a short supply of ordained trained preachers, and so they were given these sermons kind of a primer to get them going and to make sure that these uh, sermons could help be used to shape the faith and the formation and the life of the early church. In 1571, Bishop John Jewell from Salisbury added 21 more sermons officially to the list, which were practical, sermons on prayer, on sacraments, on fasting, on marriage, on gluttony, on drunkenness, and so on and so forth. The 39 Articles of Religion mandated in Article 35 that these homilies be delivered in the churches. Now, John Wesley was very influenced by this whole tradition of the Edwardian homilies of Thomas Cranmer and how they were used for faith formation. So when the Wesleyan movement began to emerge, he produced a revised version of the Book of Common Prayer, a revised version of 39 Articles, and he produced his own set of what we now call the canonical sermons, official Wesley, Wesley sermons, which were then given out to all the preachers to preach in the churches. And this happened, a collection of sermons in 1746, again in 1748, again in 1750, and again in 1760. The 1760 edition included 43 sermons, though a later a publication of that same edition included a 44th sermon, and these have become known as the canonical sermons of John Wesley. And they were used and required to be used by pastors, like, like many of you, going out into tradition to preach the gospel in the churches. By 1763, Wesley adopted what's known as the model deed, which would defrock, you know, imagine this, defrock any pastor who taught doctrines inconsistent with the Christian tradition as found in his notes in the sermons of John Wesley. Now today, tragically, all such doctrinal boundaries in Wesleyan preaching have all but evaporated. Today, Methodist preaching is, generally speaking, not particularly Wesleyan. It's often not particularly driven or framed theologically or even attentive biblically at a deep level. We even have quite a bit of preaching which falls outside the boundaries of historic Christian orthodoxy. The 43 sermons were required to be preached in order to assure that basic Christian content and all preaching would serve as a formational guide for those schooled, those unschooled, lay, clergy, whatever, in the newly emerging Methodist societies and bands which were emerging across the country. By John Wesley's death, he had published 151 sermons, and again, uh, two of our professors, Jason Vickers and uh, Kenneth Collins, have republished Wesley's 151 sermons, and arrange them not chronologically as when they were given, but soteriologically so you can actually see the whole layout of how carefully uh, prepared the sermons were to actually make sure that the whole of the faith was carefully presented to and used for training in the life of the church.
Wesley scholar from Duke, Richard Heisenotter, is correct when he says that Wesley's canonical sermons were designed to provide a solid doctrinal basis and boundaries for uneducated preachers and newly emerging congregations. And this morning, I want to publicly call our movement back to more biblical and theological-oriented preaching. Like Wesley's day, our post-Christian context has spawned vast numbers of churchgoers, or certainly potential churchgoers, who have no understanding of the Christian faith. Their knowledge of the Bible is weak. Their ability to think theological almost non-existent. Therefore, this stands as a fresh mandate for us to put aside the light-hearted, casual preaching which becomes so characteristic in our day. This is not about rhetorical style. Please hear me. Whether you preach topically or narratively or exegetically or expositionally or whatever way is not the point. Your preaching classes here will help you flourish in a range of styles that work well with you and your gifts. But you'll also be taught the driving point and the deeper point is that the underlying reality of all preaching should find its solid source in biblical theological themes and sermons. We must cut as a cancer out of our homiletical vision the, quote, I just put the cookies on the bottom shelf approach. Cut it out today. I just give them what they want to hear. Cut it out. It's cancerous. Cut it out. Preaching is not infotainment. A post-Christian culture will not be transformed by light-hearted fluff with a sprinkling of vague spirituality and God talk. The church, if you want to be honest about it, the congregations you are called to serve, they are tired of being spoken like children, spoken to like children. They are tired of going into sermons with such low expectations. They are tired of hearing sermons which are cobbled together on Saturday night between commercials. They long to be fed. They long to be challenged. They want to think deeply about things. They actually want to know what Scripture means and how it applies to the things they're facing day by day. They want to believe that you spent hours reflecting and praying about that text that week. They long for that. Is any wonder that we've encouraged people to come to church in short pants and baseball caps and drink coffee during the service? Because we ourselves have almost lost our memory that corporately assembling into the presence of the living God is a holy, sacred enterprise. We've almost lost our memory that proclaiming the word of God is a high calling and the most sacred discourse in any culture in the world. And that's the gift you've been given. In the wider culture, our social and political discourse has become coarse, crude, and infantile. Civil discourse has been slain, and democracy has the is now on the throne of public discourse. Most media outlets have succumbed to this, and it's actually difficult to encounter thoughtful, principled reflections on almost any topic that confronts our culture today. We must position ourselves as a striking alternative to that, to whatever's going on about our cult discourse. We must be thoughtful, must be principled, insightful, prepared, 
Indeed, all the ministry is a reflection of a holy, sacred calling. Now, despite the popular narrative that, quote, no one goes to church anymore, the number one corporate public activity of Americans in any given week remains, yes, church attendance. Between 25% and 37%, based on how you define a regular, of Americans attend church regularly. The NFL, in contrast, which, by the way, has passed baseball as the most popular sport in America. I'm so sorry about that, but it happened. (laughs) Even the NFL, in contrast, only draws 17% of Americans to an actual public event. Now, with apologies to Ellen Marmon today, church attendance even outranks NASCAR. Where's Ellen? There she is. Okay, just for the record. The point is, we still have an enormous privilege which is given to us in this nation today. And by the way, this is a privilege which is also true of our sisters and brothers in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, and Oceania. Preacher remains at the heart of Christian worship all over the world, and this is a sacred privilege which we must take very, very seriously. Wesley's canonical sermons were designed to equip the church to form the church in faith and practice. And even though he was preaching to far less educated people than most of you will, the content of his sermons were very rich and powerful. Now, I'm not suggesting that we at Asbury uh, create a canon of 43 sermons, which we would craft and then give out to you at graduation day. You know, like Tammy says, and it gives you the alumni Bible, and then you'd have like, you know, Ben Witherington or somebody give you like the 43 official sermons or whatever. <laughs> Wouldn't be a bad idea, actually. It kind of gets you, <laughs> get you started, you know. <laughs> What I am suggesting is that part of our homiletical process, we should think more deeply about what great doctrine of the faith we are seeking to communicate. If our sermons and other expressions of ministry are not richly reflective and shaped by a doctrine of creation, of redemption, of soteriology, of Christology, the work of the triune God, ecclesiology, biblical ethics, the global mission of the church, etc., etc., then perhaps we need to start rewriting our sermons rethinking our ministries. We certainly should re-conceptualize or, or, or re-examine uh, Wesley's sermons and, uh, and look at them more carefully. We also should develop our own intentional overall plan in our preaching ministries to make sure that over the long haul we are delivering the proper content of the faith to our congregations. We have a lot of work to do in our own community. It's not a burden which can or should be borne by our homiletics department alone. We need a holy alliance between, yes, let's say it again, IBS and exegesis classes and church history and theology, our praxis classes, our homiletics department, our chapel ministry, our conferencing, the Beeson Center for Biblical Preaching and church leadership, a lifelong learning, Seedbed's Preaching Collective. We must see this as a shared goal of all of us in keeping with our mission statement. When I was in seminary, for example, as a student 35 years ago, 
I took an exegesis course in the Minor Prophets. This is one example of many I had. It met three hours in a single session in a week. The first hour was spent translating the text from Hebrew into English and dealing with various textual you know, and linguistic issues with the text that we're looking at. The second hour was spent examining the historical setting of the passage, understanding the theological import of the passage and so forth. Took a 15-minute break. We came back after the break. And the next, the third hour, the professor would stand up and preach a 30- or 20-minute message on that passage. And then we would talk about how that passage could be applied in the life of the church. Now, in three hours, we went from the Hebrew text to historical grammatical exegesis to preaching the gospel in the church, all in three hours. Now, I still had preaching classes, but they were being supported by the larger enterprise. Because the homical collapse of the Methodist tradition, which, by the way, was our great stronghold, and to think about it, today it's collapsing, is one of the great tragedies of our time. This is not a technical problem. This is not a problem that can be solved in a, in a homiletics class. This is a problem, this is an adaptive problem, which requires all of our resource and thinking about how to change the DNA of what you do when you step up in the pulpit and preach the gospel. We must overturn the foundations of contemporary evangelical preaching. Our theological underpinnings have become too weak. Our knowledge of church history too vague. Our understanding of scripture too superficial. Our being formed in the practice of ministry too insufficiently reflective our sacramental life too casual and disconnected from the tradition. And yet that is why you came to seminary. Every day you spend here will reap a hundred times back to you. And under God's care, our faculty is prepared to lead a whole new generation of students back to the fountainhead of sustained, theologically formed, biblically faithful, historically rooted ministries. In conclusion, if you could go back in time and visit the foundry where Wesley lived and had his London base, we would find there a large room, first of all, which would seat 1,600 people for preaching of the gospel and the word. There were small rooms dedicated to 60 separate class meetings per week for theology and formational instruction. You'd find a book sales room, like our seed bed, for material distribution and pamphlets. It was a school for 60 needy children and an infirmary for medicine. It's a pattern not so much in size, but in scope for what it means for us to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. All these diverse ministries were held together, and intentionally so, by a commitment to homiletical theology. It was a preaching-infused movement that went into every crack and corner of the whole movement. It was biblically framed, theologically robust, and we cannot fulfill our mission as a seminary in the world unless we recapture our commitment to homiletical theology. It is not so much whether we preach in the open air or not. We recognize what is coming forth from our mouth. On this campus, we have two statues. Charles Wesley, right here in front of Estes Chapel, who wrote 6,000 hymns, and John Wesley, the founder of our great movement. I love those statues. My only regret 
is that they're silent. They can't speak to you. You see, Charles Wesley, they're poised, but you don't hear the 6,000 hymns that came coming forth from his mouth. Hymns that were part of this enterprise. Hymns like we sang today, And Can It Be? We'll close with another Charles Wesley hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Christ the Lord is risen today. Love divine, all love's excelling. And on and on it goes. They got it. And all they did. And Wesley, when you go by campus, when you walk by campus and you see John Wesley's statue, please hear him preaching. Hear those sermons coming forth from his mouth, his commitment to the central role of homiletical theology, doctrinally rich, but practically aimed for the life and faith of the church and the salvation of the world. Amen.